This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem overlooking the Western Wall. Today we're discussing how to live in a realm where you things are happening miraculously for you. Um, there is two worlds that our sages talk about. They talk about a world of nature and they talk about a world of wonder. They're both referring to our world because you can live in this physical environment either in a natural realm or in a wondrous realm. You actually can create wonder in the physical realm and live that wondrous experience. What does it mean, the world of wonder? What the world of wonder means is that you don't have to worry so much about the physical um, obstacles in your way. You can just watch God iron them out for you as you move forward. As opposed to the world of nature, where you do have to worry about those obstacles and work your way through them. And, and you know, like most people, most people are, are working their way through the obstacles of life and, you know, doing their best, using words like trying, trying my best, you know, and people all talking about that, you know, that, that whole trying language. Those are all the people who live in the world of nature. Now, if you had the choice to live in the world of nature or the world of wonder, which one would you go for? Wonder. Yeah, which one? I'm asking all you guys, not just James. James. Not just James. What, what world do you want to live in, nature or wonder? Which one? Both. Both. Oh, you want to live in the world of nature? <laughs> well, we are. You want, you You're want always going to be in the physical world. I'm asking, do you want to live in a world where, where you have to fight through the obstacles of life or in a world where God irons them out for you? Which one? Wonder. Yeah, so, I mean, I can't imagine there's anyone who would go for the world of nature when they could go for the world of wonder. Yes, you get eaten by a lion. Yeah. The world of wonder is the lion's going to lay down with the land. Yeah. The world of nature is your land's going to eat you. So, so, obviously, the world of wonder is the place that everyone would want to live. So, why doesn't everyone live there? So, you can have a few answers. One answer is maybe they don't know how to live there. They wouldn't know how to do that. Okay, fine. Another one is they don't know it exists. They were raised by parents who said, life is hard. Yeah. And they, and they grew up with those kind of parents. And so they just thought life was hard. And so if it's there must be obstacles. Oh, there are the obstacles. Gee, he was right. Life is hard. You know, maybe that's why. Or I got another answer that's possible. Yeah, you got another answer why people... I got another answer, which is probably the answer of four-fifths of the people in this room, if not five-fifths of the people in this room. Can you imagine five-fifths of you? So either four-fifths of you or five-fifths of you, the reason why you'll still live in the world of nature even after this class rather than the world of wonder is because that if you want to live in the world of wonder, you have to sacrifice something. you got to sacrifice something. And what you got to sacrifice is not just the ego. Ego, <laughs> ego to be nice. Someone mentioned, James mentioned ego. No, what you got to sacrifice is your life. <laughs> it's worse than the ego. you got to sacrifice the whole thing. Now, what do I mean you got to sacrifice your life? And the answer is, I mean, if sacrifice your life means you got to die for it. And what I really mean is you got to sacrifice a me death. And what is that mini-death? Mini-deaths are every time you fail or get rejected. Every time you fail or get rejected. 
Anytime you have to deal with people rejecting you, that's a mini death. Why? Because it just kills the ego. It's so painful. When people reject you, it's just so painful. You all know what I'm talking about. I mean, like, yeah. it's, it's worse than failure. It is horribly scary. Rejection is like, you know, and they even say that the, that the number one fear over even death, death's really the first one, but the number one fear is not death, it's public speaking. Because what would they think? What are they going to say? You put yourself on the line of fire, and now you can have a serious rejection going on, so it's better just to shut up. Rather than risk the burn of rejection, of ridicule, of lack of acceptance. Right? Got that? So, so in order for you to get the... In order for you to get the the world of wonder there's certain things you gotta do for it and one of those is you gotta break through the fear of death which is really ego death and that's rejection and failure you're gonna have to bump up against rejection and failure a lot of times in the process of it now you might be saying well gee rabbi didn't you just say God was gonna iron out the obstacles yeah, you're one of them. Yeah, you can't, you can't get to the, you can't get to your obstacles without, 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 you know, think about it. I mean, let's say, okay, okay, Rabbi Elto said God's going to get rid of my obstacles. Well, yeah, but you still got to get up and act now. And what's going to stop you? Well, what if it doesn't work? Whatever it is you choose to do. What if people don't receive it well? What if I get ridiculed in the process? You understand? So you got to be willing to sacrifice yourself in the process. And I, all I was trying to say is the reason why you most likely won't live in the world of wonder after I explain how to live there is because you're just afraid to get going because you don't want to get ridiculed. And you don't want to get, you don't want to get, you don't want to fail. And, and, and what's the price for success, by the way? What's the price for success? What, what do you think the most successful people in the world did many times? Fail. Fail, yeah. Failure. Well, that lets you know something, that the price for success is failure. failure. You've got to fail many times. As I like to say it, most people taste failure once and spit it out. Successful people chew on the fat of failure. Chew on it. Everyone try that. Chew on the fat of failure. One, two, three. Chew on the fat of failure. Together. One, two, three. Chew on the fat of failure. That's right. He's chewing on some fat Failure fat over there. And by the way, the fat of failure excretes things into your saliva. And when you digest it, it teaches. It's full of lessons. It tells you exactly what you shouldn't repeat. <laughs> Meaning, move in that direction. You were doing good. But something you did around there wasn't a working you know, path. So you're going to have to adjust at that point which may be quite high on the path of success. But right there, don't go back there. Go there. It's, uh, these are pointers. Failure is a pointer. In which way to go from wherever you've learned to get to. Until now. now, the... Um, I just want to... For some reason, I decided to talk about obstacles today. So, um, But I'm going to talk about how to live in the world of wonder. Um, another reason why you might not live in the world of wonder is... <laughs> I might just come down to rejection failure again is that 
you do have, I mean, eventually you're going to have to take a risk where you're like, you're kind of burning your bridge back. You know, like the, like the Spanish, the Spanish um, conqueror who landed on some land and I think the Americas and you know, maybe South Americas. And, what was that? Moctezuma. And he realized that there's no way they will win. The, the European soldiers will lose this. They're all going to die. They can't win. Once he saw the situation on the ground, he said, we're going to die. Yeah, we're not going to We're not going to make it. So he had them burn the ships. And so they all watched the ships burn, and they all looked at their leader and said, what's this all about? And he said, he says, if you ever want to see your family, there's only one way out of here. <laughs> you either win, and we'll build new ships and leave, or you will never see your families again. You're never going home. There's no retreating from here. And they won, because there was no way back. And so it's also similar that often when you live in a world of wonder, you have to be willing to play big like that. And I have this all the time with, uh, with participants in the Possibly Youth Seminar. I get like, you know, okay, when I do in New York, so almost everyone's businessmen, they can afford it. In Israel, less businessmen. <laughs> and they can't always afford it. But what I tell all of them, whether they're in New York or they're in Israel, is I say, you focus on the what, let God worry about how. You focus on the what, let God worry about how. What does that mean? That you just stay focused on the what, which is you'd like to be participating in the seminar, which ain't cheap. And let God worry about how you get it done. So I just graduated last week 23 men, four of whom had no money. And I asked them on the last day, in front of everybody, everyone knew who had no money. I just, well, it was an easy day. I just asked, is anyone willing to admit they came in here with no money? And four of them raised their hand. I knew who they were. They didn't have to raise it. I mean, I was letting them stay anonymous. But they all four raised their hands. And we're all like brothers at the end. No one cares about that. We're, we're like connected at the hip. We know each other like our own smell after five days of together. You know, it's 25 hours in five days. Five hours a day. So I asked all four. I said, Did you, are you paid up? And the answer was yes. All four were paid up for the seminar. Each one with their own crazy story. Ask an elderly Jerusalemite man. Ask an elderly Jerusalemite man who might have 10, 12, 14, 16 kids, but an elderly one. Ask him, tell me, did you marry off all 14 kids? He'll say to you, yes, not only did I marry them off, but I bought each one of them a house. Meaning he went in with some other father and, and through various miraculous, wonderful, wondrous ways. Yeah, all 14 kids are married and all 14 kids have owned their homes because I bought them. And now you're looking at a man who if you went there on a Friday before Shabbos and you took a cab to his house and you're figuring out oh, the guy has 14 kids and me, you forgot your cab money. So you're like, the guy has 14 kids, I'll just go upstairs to his house and ask him for 25 shekels to pay for the cab and I'll pay him back after Shabbos. It's very likely that there's not 25 shekels in his house. Including before their weddings and after their weddings and during their weddings. And, and now, now, that's not just one old man in Jerusalem. That's every old man in Jerusalem. And it's also every old man in B'nai Brak. I'm telling you, try it. 
Don't take my word for it. Find an old Jerusalemite. I'm sure there's plenty at the hotel. Find an old Jerusalemite and ask him, how many weddings did you make? You can ask him another thing. Did you happen to have an extra $100,000 lying around that year? And this is, this, this is a home where there may not be 25 shekels going into Shabbos, week after week after week. And the answer is no, they didn't have another home. They didn't have an extra $100,000 lying around for 14 kids. Ask them if they bought homes. The answer is yes. Every old man you'll meet. Without exception. No exceptions. Zero exceptions. I'm part of a new generation where you like, some do buy the homes, some don't. Yeah. I got hoodwinked in my first kid. And that's it. <laughs> no more homes after that. Like, I learned my lesson. I'm still paying it off. I'm not sure exactly how. But I'm not in charge of how. I'm in charge of what. Now, it probably would have gone a lot quicker if I didn't feel hoodwinked. Because I, I don't think I'm 100% in on that. So I, I still got to work on that, that aspect. Whereas these other people were 100% in. So the question is... The question is, what's going on here? What do these old Jerusalemites have that you need? And the answer is, is well, there's, I'm going to give you a few answers, but one of them is that they only focus on what, not on how. And what is the what in their case? Well, you tell me. If you have ten kids, let's say, eight kids, six kids, can you do the American thing? For like, you know, the people who have the one point two kid. Yeah, you ever seen the point two kid? So, if you have a one point two kid, you likely can afford him with double income families. You can afford that kid. The problem is, is that you can afford that kid to be thirty eight years old with long hair, playing crazy networked, internationally networked video games stoned out of his mind on cannabis with no more pigment in his skin because he doesn't come out anymore sitting upstairs in his baby blue room that you built for him when he was five can you do that if you have eight kids no no that's not going to be happening so what happens instead is you need an exit plan just like a startup you start up you exit maybe you go public maybe you sell it Maybe you marry them off. But you have come in with an with a startup. It's called the young family. And you must have an exit plan when you have that many kids. Because you're just not going to be able to afford to keep them around the whole time. And it's not going to be very good for them. Now, if you're one of those kids in one of those big families, you're really lucked out. You know why? Because if your parents now have to marry you off, when they're probably going to do so pretty young, you know, they're not going to let you grow up too old in that house because, again, who can afford you? And so your parents are going to primary off pretty young, but here's the thing. Now you're getting married off as opposed to marrying yourself off. Well, let's take some random example here of someone who's ever tried to marry themselves off here. Anyone here ever try to marry themselves off? Anyone try to, try to marry yourself off? How'd that go? It lasted like 14 months. 14 months, and how old were you when you finally figured it out? How old were you when you got married? Oh, I was in my 40s. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> okay, now I didn't mean to like strike gold on the very first person, but no, I, maybe he did get married. On, I don't know. So, this is a classic example of marrying yourself off. Okay, when you marry yourself off, so then you are in a totally different realm of potential success, you're definitely going to lose the age of marriage, which is obviously traditionally much younger than 40. And the age of marriage is usually around the time of of what is called one sexual prime, which is going to be for boys starting at 18. And that's probably going to be the best time to get married because otherwise you're just going to create a lot of problems for you and others. For you and other people's soon-to-be wives. Yeah? Which is not a very nice thing to do to someone's wife. Even though she's not married yet, why would you treat her any different? She will be married. So, 18 is a good year for the boys to be married. Now, of course, today's 18-year-olds could never be married, so forget that. But I'm just saying that that would have been good. Now, traditionally, if you go to all the aboriginal tribes of the world and the few places that haven't been touched by Westernism, you will still find that people get married, boys get married between 14 and 16, and girls get married between 12 and 14. And it's very interesting that Westerners have laws against the actual traditions of all communities in the world that haven't been touched by the West. You know, in the 50s, a man of 18 needed his mother's, mother's permission to marry, and a woman of 17 did not. That's interesting. In a man of what? Where? A man of 18 years old. Needed his mother's permission? A man of 20 needed permission from their parents to marry. Interesting. And yet the 18-year-old bride did not need permission. Yeah, it's very interesting how they did all this. This was in New York. Now, by the way, I'm not saying it's bad that Western people you know, move the marriage age up because, again, it's it's not a the kind of system that values, you know, progeny. And anyway, but the bottom line is is that is that twelve to fourteen apparently is perfect. When you leave them alone, when you leave civilizations alone, twelve to fourteen is perfect for the girls. Fourteen to sixteen is perfect for the boys. Now, you may say, how could a twelve-year-old ever be ready to get married? And the answer is by watching her sister get married when she was six. Meaning, sorry, not the sister six. When the sister was 12, and you're a six-year-old little girl going to your sister's wedding. Well, guess what happens when you're 11? What's, what happens when you're 11? You start getting ready emotionally. You start getting ready. You're preparing yourself. You, can't, you don't even need to prepare yourself. Something shifts inside of you. You understand? That's how a 12-year-old's ready. And by the way, if she's not ready, she'll be ready by the time she's 13. Or she'll be ready by the time she's 14. And that's why it was 12 to 14. Because it's just a matter of time. Till she's ready because she watched. And if she's the firstborn daughter, well, she watched her cousins get married between 12 and 14. Or she watched her neighbors get married 12 and 14. Or she watched her sister, her, she watched her Friends. She went to her friend's older sister's wedding at 12. And she loves that girl because she spends all her time in their house every day. And she's now married at 12. And so, so it's very interesting. And I don't know the history behind why the West took that right away. Now, what do you think the Jews did all these centuries? What do you think the Jews did for millennia? 12 to 14 for the girls and 14 to 16 for the boys? What do you think? You betcha. Exactly what the ages were for the boys as well. Now, the Talmud actually, the Mishnah actually gives us a cutoff for the men. Or maybe it's even the ideal time, but the Mishnah seems to say that 18 is perfect for men. 18 is perfect for men. It doesn't mention women. 
as far as what's perfect, but um, but it does say Shemunasir Lechupa, 18 to the Chupa. But Jewish history proves that it was much earlier. So I imagine 18, maybe that's like, you don't want to go beyond 18. Or maybe the Mishnah is really saying that's the perfect age. I think it's saying that's the perfect age, is 18 to the Chupa. Didn't they also get married earlier because they would die because of diseases then? They died much earlier. No. And, the, and also, the... Um, there was also um, you could, the, the list of ages in Judaism are really more set up for the human psyche that's what I think why it says 18 because think about it human psyche of anyone between birth and three is like you're to- you don't need to be accountable for anything because you can't even remember what you did yesterday so if you cooked your cheese toast in your father's VHS machine <laughs> on Monday it does, it's not worth punishing them very badly because even with any punishment you give them, that might seem like a great idea on Tuesday. They're, you can't hold a two-year-old accountable. They're just like wild animals. And hence you'll see in Judaism, no kippah, no tzitzis, that's the cosmic dental floss we wear, no tzitzis, and no, um, and no hair cutting. You let their hair grow because you don't turn them into some civilized being that we all want to make Civilize. Don't civilize him until he's got cognition of a sense of self that needs to be civilized. It's not time for socializing him right now. It is time for him to just be wild. Because he is wild. Why would you make him something he's not? Let him be. That's, that's something, a really big principle that many people don't discuss in Judaism is age-specific appropriate behavior. Age-specific appropriate behavior. And that is that till three, you're wild. Let him be wild. Don't turn him into something he is not. Let the hair grow on that kid. This comes three. Three comes the kippa, pace, sitsis for three-year-old boys. Why? Because once you're three, not everyone at three, but certainly by three, three and a half till four, but that year is the year where you get your first sample of there's a me. Like as a cognitive entity, entity, there's a me, a cognitive entity with a sense of self, and I exist. Come for a sound bite. Come for a sound bite. Just here five minutes. We just got to halakas, uh, so we so now he's wearing a kippah, meaning you're responsible to something above you. Now he's got payas because, you know, payas need no explanation. <laughs> Just kidding. And now he's got sitsis, which represent, sitsis represent, do the right thing. That's what sitsis are. Sitsis are do the right thing. Now you can't tell a two-year-old, to, you can tell a two-year-old to do the right thing, but it's like, you know, don't hold your breath for that. You know, he's two. He's a crazy, wild animal. Later comes the age of five. And five says the Mishnah that they need to learn the Chumash. Why? Because it's just not a time where you're, you're like very intellectual. So pump that kid with Torah, meaning the actual written text. Pump him with the written text. Lots of it. Yeah? Give him a lot of that written text. Now three to five, you're going to have to teach him the alphabet. And that's what we do. We teach him the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. And then five comes the Chumash. And you give him a lot of that. 
lot of that bump them up the yeah now he's gone eight years straight just learning the written Torah eight years straight means he knows it backwards and forwards backwards and forwards you know the written Torah backwards and forwards you don't know none of that stuff because you were raised Hasidic Hasidim don't keep the Mishnah well guess what nor do the Litvaks or the Sephardi no one does that now why don't they do that that's beyond this discussion However, I was the crazy father who said, my firstborn must go according to the Mishnah. And I sent him to one of those Mishnah schools, one of those schools that keeps the Mishnah and says, fill them with Torah. Well, you want to know something? Now that we're, I don't know how many years later, but if my 22-year-old son is at my Shabbos table, he's at the Shabbos table and I'm quoting something from the Torah and I'd like to know where it says that. And I remember about two words, but but I want to hear the whole sentence. I refer to my 22-year-old, and I always look at him with wonder, saying, like, you know all of Torah by heart. And, and he's just like, that's what you did to me. You sent me to one of these weird schools. But, I mean, how awesome would that be the rest of your life to have an encyclopedic memory of the, of, of the actual interface between God and creation? Like, how cool would that be to have that at your disposal at all times, like a Google search, lahabdil, of the Torah, at all times. So I gave that gift to my first son, but i got to tell you, it wasn't easy, so I gave that up for the rest of my sons. So the rest of my sons, they know Jack, and my oldest son knows all of Tanakh. Yeah? And, uh, and by the way, it has affected the rest of their understanding, because later it says, time for Mishnah. And it's trying to learn the oral law. And then it says, 18, oh, sorry, 13 le mitzvahs. What does it say? Someone remind me of the Mishnah. 15 for Gemara. What was it? 15 for Gemara. What does the Mishnah say about, uh, we know bar mitzvahs. Ha Mishnah in the Torah. Mishnah. Anyone know that Mishnah? The girls, that that lady knows. You went to sin. Didn't you have to memorize the Pirkeabos? You didn't memorize it? Mike is... My girls grew up, you have no choice, you have to memorize all of Pirkeabos for the national exam, not the, not the, uh, not like a special requirement, this is like to take a national exam. Um, you can hand me a sitter. Yeah. A sitter? Nope. Okay, don't worry about it. But let's get, what? I thought, oh, it was 10 minutes. We're all guessing away. We're guessing. Yeah, I don't think we went to my kid's school. Now, uh, it, said, it also says, I think, Esrim, lively, though. Let's not forget that. Let's, let's, go to, um, let's go to Bar Mitzvah. So here's an amazing thing, is that at 13 years old, and girls at 12, you're now responsible for all of the commandments. You've got to do all this stuff. Why? Because that is the age where you go from girl to woman, that's the age we go from boy to man. Meaning, it's a rite of passage. It's a shift. Now, every tribal community on this planet, including our tribes, have a massive rite of passage. Massive. You understand what a rite of passage is? Everyone knows that term? Like, for example, if you're a Native American in India, there was one tribe that puts you in a hole. Can you imagine being put in a hole in your bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah? You, go, you get put in a pit. And you get to know yourself down there for a few months. You know, they send you a little raw deer meat or something once in a while, you know. 
just had something to gnaw on, you know, like a little water here and there. Yeah, you get to know yourself in that pit. And then when they raise you out of the pit, if you weren't already dead from snakes and scorpions, you, uh, no, there were no snakes and scorpions. It's a different story. But if you were not killed in the pit or died in the pit or whatever, you came out a man or a woman. Now, it was only about a half a year later. You're now 13 and a half. But the society of tribes throughout history do not tolerate children over the age of puberty, over the age of bar mitzvah. They don't tolerate children there. It's not good for the society to not draw a line in the sand that there's no more being a kid after those ages. Which is very interesting. Because Judaism has the same thing. Unless you're raised modern Orthodox, or conservative, or reform, or reconstructionist, or unaffiliated, if you are raised in the black hatitude community, there is a major line in the sand drawn for you, and you are no longer tolerated as a kid. Kid stuff's no longer tolerated. Jerusalem is a little more extreme, man, because no more bikes, which is rough. It's very rough. At least European communities ride bikes. You'll see old men with beards riding bikes in London and, and stuff. But Jerusalem, you'll never see after a certain age. Now, since they have these electric bikes, people are loosening up a bit. But it's, uh, it's starting to loosen up a bit because it's just hard to keep them off those things. But, but, the, uh, but forget the bike thing. You're put in this long coat. You're a 13-year-old. You're like a, you're like a little model caricature of a rabbi. You're a miniature rabbi. Hmm. In a long coat, yeah, a black hat with a layer of glue around the rim, put on the head, and expected everything. You're praying three times a day, you're studying Torah all day, almost without breaks. There's no such thing as ADHD, at least in our community, it probably is in America, but we don't have that here. And because the there's a special education that they do, special education. It's a special type of education that they do here in Jerusalem. And uh, you can tell me, where'd you grow up? Uh, so you'll tell me if they did that where you grew up. So I went to visit my same son, you know, my older son, who knows him. So I went to visit him in, uh, I had to bring a sandwich, he forgot a sandwich, so I went to the, you know, he was, he was like three years old. I went to, he was learning all of that, so I went to the Cheder, and and uh, I bring a sandwich, and there's no one in the classroom. So I start looking around, and I find them out in the playground. Playing, so okay, great. I, okay, I put the sandwich back in the classroom on a spot. And uh, anyway, this happened several times in the first, you know, the first couple months. Every time, no matter what time I got there, they were on recess. So after the fourth time, I went to the Rebbe, you know, the, the teacher, and I said to the teacher, I said, Every time I come, you're on recess. Like, what are you doing with my kid here? You know, like, I'll keep him at home. Maybe I'll learn something, because this kid, like, can really sit and learn. You know, extreme levels of concentration. So I'm like, what are you doing? He says, he's three years old. These are three-year-olds. What do you expect from a three-year-old? And I'm like, I guess you're right. Let him play. And that was it. Come back the next year, and I noticed that 10% less time playing. Come back the next year, 20% less. What is the secret to education traditionally throughout our centuries? 
of Jewish education. You treat every single kid as if he's ADHD. Every single kid ADHD, and you slowly draw them in. At first, it's lots of recess, less class time. Less recess, more class time. Less recess, more class time. Less recess, more class time. Is that going to be hard on a kid like mine who didn't need any of that recess? Yes. But we're going to sacrifice him, not the entire community of normal kids. We're not sacrificing the normal kids for the ones who make us teachers feel good. When someone doesn't understand one of my lessons, I do not blame the kid. That's my fault. I miss something, not the kid. You get that? I'm an educator. He's not an educator. He's a kid. If he missed something, that's not his fault. That's my fault. Or it's my education system's fault. And lo and behold, here's my kid. By the time they were near bar mitzvah age, they have almost no recess. And 100% of the kids in their class and all the other classes around of that age throughout all of Jerusalem are sitting and learning full time. Full time. There is no such thing as ADHD if you treat kids the way the Torah teaches us. And how does the Torah teach us to raise kids? The Torah teaches us to raise kids as they are. Don't put a keep on a kid who's two. Don't even cut his hair. When he's 13, give him a rite of passage. When he's little, don't put him in a classroom all day. Don't try to make him in, don't try to create him in your image. He's created in God's image. And God knows how he should be. And that is wild and slowly tamed. Yes, we're going to sacrifice the kids who can concentrate. My kid was that kid. He was a little bored out there. I mean, he played with everyone else. I mean, he wanted to bully him because I think, you know, like he, was, he was too bored, so he just figured I'll start picking on him. You know, but he, he had nothing to do out there. Sometimes he stayed in and studied during recess. But we sacrifice them, not normal people. Now here's, you want to hear the craziest part of this whole story, and then we'll end with that? Check this out. So, so what, what sports am I known for? Anyone here know me at all? Anyone know me at all? Surf. Okay, surfing. Very good. I surf. I surf this Not week. I surf. Oh my gosh, tomorrow I'm supposed to surf again. I keep an eye on, I keep on the surf report, you know, when it's going to get big. And so it was big earlier this week. It's going to be big tomorrow again. Next week, if you want to see big waves, it's going to be about 15 feet on Sunday. But the winds are going to be all wrong. There won't be any surface in the water. We have to wait till Tuesday to paddle out when the storm ends. There's a big storm coming. So, anyway... And by the way, I have no idea how it's going to affect us. I just know it's going to affect the waves. So it could be a windstorm without rain, but knowing Jerusalem will be rain. Now, um, check this out. So I'm known for surfing. What's my other sport? Bike. Yeah, what kind of biking? Mountain, Mountain bike. Sound like kid sport or adult sport? Adult. Mm, not at all. This is we're going to go play in the dirt. And don't don't aren't looking to play in the dirt. Okay, we're going to go play in the dirt. What's my favorite thing to drink? Craft beer. Craft beer. Craft beer. Very good. When it's late at night, where do I prefer to be? Woods. 
Where do I like to be late at night? We started it with the broken blood vessels on my forehead. Oh, the Schwitz. The Schwitz in the sauna. Last night, this guy like broke the blood vessels on my forehead in the Schwitz. You know, the Schmeisser. I trained that same son of mine to be an elite mountain biker. Didn't make sense to teach him serving because we're in Jerusalem. He just wouldn't get enough time in the water. You have to get a kid in the water every day if you want to teach him to surf. Mountain biking is much more, you know, easy to learn. But I trained him as an elite mountain biker. When he was 11 years old, the people in the country said that he was the number one mountain biker in the state of Israel. Now, why did they say that? Why do they need to say that? Just look at the results of the competitions. And the answer is, the reason they said that is because the competitions are on Shabbat. And my kid would rather die than ride a mountain bike on Shabbat. And so the, all they could do is watch videos. So whenever I was riding with top pros, because I ride on a professional level, when I ride with the pros, and I'd show them videos of my son, you know, when I saying videos, I'm saying he's flying higher than the ceiling and longer than this classroom at 11 years old with the bike sideways because he missed the jump. Now, what you watch, if you watch YouTube and, uh, you know, Red, Red Bull videos, you then jump off, and you, you there's ways you deal with that. But you watch my son with the bike already gone sideways. I mean, his bike's higher than he is. He's upside down and going for full crash and burn. The kid somehow pulls his bike. He's like an instinctual animal on this mountain bike. Pulls the bike back under him and lands as if nothing happened. <laughs> I have videos of this. And it's since he's little. And they all said, like, we're so glad he's Shomer Shabbos, because otherwise he would be the number one mountain biker in the country. But instead, he's, you know, studying all day. But when I take him out riding, this is the kind of rider he became. Now, next part of the story. My son's now 13, 14, 15, and when he was about 15 years old, maybe he was already 16 years old. Now, he's got, like, you know, the $7,000 bike and all the body armor and the latest helmets and the everything. You know, I'm, a kid like that, you give him the top equipment. You know, you're not messing around with that kid. And they, so he has top equipment. I have top equipment. It's a lot of investment for him to have this equipment. But I always kept him in good equipment. And I keep saying, hey, hey, Rummy, I'm going riding. You want to come? He's like, mm, yeah, I can't come today. Hey, Avrami, I'm going riding. You want to come? Um, I'm not feeling like it. Hey, Avrami, I'm going riding. You want to come? Uh, I'm a little short on sleep right now. I don't think I have the motor skills because we're doing, you know, really advanced downhill riding. I don't think I'll have the motor skills right now. Over and over and over again. After about a, like three months, I finally go, hey, Avrami, it's been like three months. Every single time you give me another excuse why you're not going riding, what is going on? At which point, my son of Rumi looks at me and he says, Daddy, Tati, he says, Tati, you never grew up. <laughs> you never grew up. You missed your rite of passage. He knows terms like rite of passage. This is my son. You missed your rite of passage because Westerners, ASAP, United States of ASAP, <laughs> or the EU, the European Union of ASAP, 
They don't want you to have a rite of passage. They like the buying habits of kids, but as wealthy adults, they like kids and toys. Adults should have lots of toys. I don't know exactly what they're thinking, but no rite of passage in the West. Daddy, you never had your rite of passage. But Daddy, when I was 13, you locked me in this long coat, you put me in that glued-on hat, and you sent me to study Torah 14 hours a day, every single day. Until Shabbat, when we're not allowed anyway to do any of those kinds of kid things. I grew up, Daddy. You didn't. You want to hear something so sweet? He and I have been... uh, connecting lately a lot and I was on my way mountain biking and he he said he's coming (laughs) I don't have a bike for him really anymore I I put him on his brother's bike who's also like he loves riding with me but it's just to be with me it's a real people person he just wants time with me and uh, my his younger brother the 16 year old but uh Abrami gets on all the gear of his 16 year old brother all the body armor gets on my 16 year old's bike which is also an elite bike and rides with me and guess what he's just as good as when he was a little kid he's just as good having not set foot on these trails these trails are not for the faint of heart when Rocky Mountain Jews from Denver come to visit me they're just always like oh my gosh the skills of the Israeli mountain bikers are like way beyond what you deal with in in the Rockies Again, we don't have groomed trails by the National Service, you know, nature service, you know, making our trails, you know, smooth as a, as, you know, a, you know, a little baby. They're not like that. So, so you either learn to be incredibly good at technical skills here, or you don't enjoy your ride. So that's the way it goes. Now, the most important factor of all of this is you marry off your children young. You marry them off. And what's the beauty of being married off by your parents? You know what the beauty is? Is that if they got to marry you off, you're the merchandise. Tell me, Sam, if you were selling merchandise and people were going to come look at it, obviously, because they're not going to buy it without seeing it, would you take good care of that merchandise? Of course you will. You're going to take very good care of that merchandise. If your responsibility is to marry your children off, a responsibility that Westerners throw off, but if you're going to take responsibility for your children and marry those kids off, you take good care of them. And it's nice to be a kid in that family because you know someone's watching out for you. You know, you're going to be treated in a way that that your purity is going to be on the highest highest value so that you're someone who's marriageable. So far I have two son-in-laws. Do you know what you call son-in-laws in Yiddish? The word is Edim. Edim. You know what Edim means? 
Aiding and what's the word aid? Witness. A witness or a testifier. Someone who testifies. Aiding or testimonies. Why would the word for son-in-law in our community be testimony? And the answer is that that kid is testimony. That boy that married your daughter is testimony that you took care of your daughter. You did not throw her to the wolves. But you took her from your home and you introduced her to a new home where she could build her own home. And the boy you took for her is a witness to that. He is a testimony to the fact that you took care of your children. Trying to marry yourself off as Westerners do is a... Is, I mean, the, the facts are on the ground. It's an abject failure. And you see how the age is just the second Westerners... Like, for example, my grandmother was not an observant lady, but they married her off when she was 16. Because we're talking about the 1930s. She was married off when she was 16, because that's the way things went. But the next generation had to already marry themselves off. My father got married at 30. It went from 16 to 30. And it's not because he's a boy. It's because that was the generation that stopped taking responsibility for their children. Meaning their children's marriages. It just bumped up like 10 years, like, like that. Anyway, may we all be blessed to be our age. Um, I don't know if I can ever become an adult. And I'm not sure I should because I missed it. You know, I just missed it. So I bless myself to be safe when I'm doing my sports, to make, to make mature decisions in those various situations I seem to put myself in daily. Um, I should make good choices. Uh, may you, if you also missed your rite of passage, also make good choices. And, uh, but, but let us all be committed to raise our children in such a way that, that they are... Uh, age appropriate. Yeah, everything's age appropriate. They're not playing tennis six hours a day at 45 years old. Okay? And, um, or golf. And, and even though I started this class on a totally different subject, we ended on this subject. But I'll tell you all that, that if you want to really get everything that I shared, just focus on what it is you want. God will worry about the how. We learned from the spies. Ten spies said, how can we do this? And they came back with a long list of reasons why the Jews can't conquer the land of Israel. Joshua and Caleb, two other leaders who went to Israel, they came back and just said, we can do this. And the reason why is because they were focused only on what. The others were focused on how. Caleb and Joshua and Joshua were so focused on what that they didn't even answer the detailed list of the spies, the ten spies. They're like, Eretz Modi, great place, nice place. That's what their answer was. It's a nice place. What about answering all the tainas, all the and what about answering all the complaints of the tribes? Oh, we don't get involved in details. We're focused on what. So in your life, my friends, worry about what. Let God worry about how. You do that in business. You do that in relationships. You do that in your daily schedule. You do that at work. You do that with people you do business with. You always just stay 100% focused on what. You let God worry about how. 
and then you will get miracles in your life. Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.